Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rebello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios at Midori House in London and also from around the world. This week, as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza intensifies, we get the latest from the ground. Then... We don't need another mealy-mouthed politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear just to try to get your vote, then to get in office and to do her donor's bidding. Republican presidential candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley go head-to-head in a tense debate. Also ahead, with less than 200 days to go, how is the French capital coming along with preparations for the Olympic Games? They are a bit worried and there are good reasons for that. Like the first question is the transport question. You know, the transport minister even asked Parisians to go on holiday during the Games. Plus a visit to Singapore's National Gallery's new exhibition and we meet the author of the new book, The City of Today is a Dying Thing. That's all ahead over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rubello. We start today's programme with a look at the escalating conflict between Israel and Hamas. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has warned that more needs to be done to get aid into Gaza and that the civilian cost of Israel's war with Hamas is too high. Secretary of State Blinken was speaking after a meeting with Israeli leaders earlier this week in what is now his fourth trip to the country since the conflict began. Monocle's Emma Nelson was joined by Shana Lowe from the Norwegian Refugee Council and by the US analyst Scott Lucas to get the latest. About 85% of Gaza's uh, residents remain displaced and Israel has indicated that they will not allow any residents of the north to return and begin to rebuild their lives. People are running out of space in southern Gaza as Israel intensifies its uh, hostilities uh, in central and southern Gaza. Fewer and fewer people have any place to go. More and more people are sleeping in the streets or in tents without shelter, unprotected, as winter uh, continues here. And so what we're hearing is that people do want to return home. We have colleagues who would like to return to their homes, see what is salvageable, if there is anything left standing, and begin to rebuild their lives. Preventing Palestinians from returning to their homes amounts to to forcible transfer, a grave violation of international humanitarian law. The way in which these Palestinians were displaced from northern Gaza was unlawful, and the fact that they continue to be prevented from returning home, despite the fact that fighting seems to have subsided um, or lessened in the north, continues to be a violation of international humanitarian law. What uh, you mentioned briefly the conditions that people are living living under, but just give us a, a bit more of an, a more vivid picture of of what people are experiencing, and how they are coping underneath Israeli bombardment. The people of Gaza have been incredibly resilient during the last three plus months um, and and continue to, I think, be surprised themselves by what they are able to withstand. As I mentioned, you have about 85 percent, 1.9 million Palestinians displaced in the Gaza Strip. Many of those have been displaced multiple times as, as fighting has continued further south. People who have fled to the south seeking safety have found themselves bombarded and bombed in the south and in central Gaza, including some of NRC's own, where I work, our own staff. Uh, There is no safe place in Gaza. 
People are running out of food. The UN has is on the alert for, for famine. About a quarter of Gaza's population is at risk of starvation at this point because there simply is not enough aid or assistance coming in. And the markets are not being replenished for people who do have cash to be able to buy food for their families. On top of that, the infrastructure of Gaza has been destroyed. You have sewage in the streets. Diseases are spreading in these tightly packed sites hosting displaced persons. Really, we've been talking for the last two months about a catastrophe, but every day it, we're continued to be surprised that, that things can only get worse. Aid is still not reaching those in need, particularly in northern Gaza. Israel has been denying convoys seeking to bring medical supplies and assistance to the hospitals and pharmacies in northern Gaza. Right now, we're really facing a catastrophe on all levels, uh, food, shelter, clean water, uh, sanitation. So when you hear the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, warning that more needs to be done to get aid into Gaza, how hopeful are you that his words will change something? You know, we appreciate any efforts to get more aid in, but it's not about just the rhetoric. We need to see changes on the ground. We need to see opening of additional crossings. We need the restrictions that Israel has imposed on what can get in lifted. We need an international body to be screening the goods and remove that from Israel because there are long delays and and things that should be getting in uh, are getting denied. We've heard reports of things as simple as sleeping bags being denied entry because of the metal zippers on them. This is arbitrary. This is capricious. This is unjust for a a civilian population of 2.3 million people who have suffered 95 days of continuous bombardment and and hostilities to be denied basic necessities for their survival. I mean, it is just unconscionable. And we, we desperately need not just Secretary Blinken to be saying that more aid needs to be getting in, but we need to see the results of that. We need an increase in aid. We need a scaling up and we need an act. We need access to all parts of Gaza. The only way that we as humanitarians can can truly serve, fulfill our, our duties and serve the people of Gaza and meet their needs is to have uninhibited access to all areas of Gaza. And the only way that that can be done is a permanent sustained ceasefire. We know that this conflict will not be solved through military means. It can only be resolved peacefully and we need to, to stop Uh, with the destruction, stop with the senseless loss of of innocent civilians. We have uh, thousands of of Palestinian children dead, over 23,000 Palestinians killed, uh, thousands more buried under the rubble, still not recovered. The only way that we can really address this catastrophe is to put an end to the fighting. Trainer Lowe, thank you so much for joining us on the line from uh, Jerusalem. Now, Scott Lucas is adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute University College, Dublin. He was listening to that. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Emma. I mean, you could you could hear the sense of exasperation in, in Shana's voice there. We need to see changes. We need an international body. The way that this is being managed is absolutely arbitrary. One wonders whether that sense of exasperation is being shared by Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken's statement yesterday, Emma, was all show and no substance. I'll say that as an analyst. I'll say as an analyst that his words will do nothing to, in the short term, to limit the Israeli attacks across Gaza, especially in the center and in the south. His words will do nothing to bring aid into Gaza. As a person, what I'll tell you is, is I not only share that sense of exasperation, I'm almost in a sense of exhaustion 
over the failure of the United States to do anything to limit what is a mass killing, mainly of civilians in Gaza, with more than 85% of them displaced. What can he say or do, though? I mean, he has repeated this message so many times that more aid needs to be done. And and efforts have been made by the United States to try to get Israel to tone down its military operation. But it it seems as if Israel is following its own course. Well, let's first of all establish what the practical effect of what he said yesterday was in terms of why it's ineffective and then say what he could have said. What he said was effectively to give support for the broad rhetoric of the Israeli war cabinet, which is that Hamas must be eliminated. And of course, he said it specifically, he said Hamas must be removed as a threat to Israeli security. And of course, that's the rationale Israel uses to continue the attacks, which are simply carpet attacks that hit civilians in terms of bombing, as well as hitting Hamas. So more than 250 Gazans were killed yesterday, and the large majority of them were civilians. Uh, There was very little aid that went into Gaza yesterday and the day before that, the day before that, because the Israelis have an effective veto over aid. Now, why is that? The U.S. had two points of leverage with the Israelis. The first is they could have supported a U.N. Security Council resolution, which called for a ceasefire and which called for unrestricted aid into Gaza. The United States refused to do that last month. And indeed, they effectively said you can only have a resolution that continues to maintain an Israeli veto on aid that goes into Gaza. Secondly, the United States could have restricted military assistance to Israel. But rather than restrict its military supplies to Israel, the United States has stepped up its military supplies to Israel, including many thousands of unguided as well as guided bombs and artillery shells. In other words, the weapons that are being used to kill civilians in Gaza. Until Anthony Blinken at least in private, presents some type of leverage which says the United States is clearly going to draw a line against Israel through either a call for a ceasefire and unrestricted aid and or limiting military assistance. The U.S. has no leverage. And his his words yesterday were all about the future. In the future, we could have a Palestinian state. In the future, we could have Israel normalization with the Arab states, avoiding the immediate question of that none of that is feasible. None of that is on the cards unless Israel halts its military operations. Shane Loma a moment ago mentioned the fact that the military operation not only needs to stop, but this needs to be a negotiated conclusion. This is the only way that this is going to happen. There have been suggestions that there is a regional path out of this involving the Saudis' recognition of Israel in, in return for recognition of a Palestinian state. I mean, these seem to be incredibly difficult ideas to grapple with, but it does seem to be an idea that concerted effort could change things. Emma, again, I'm going to repeat, the Israeli normalization with Saudi, which has been a long-term U.S. objective, which was being pursued before October 7th, that disappeared on October 7th, initially with Hamas's mass killings inside Israel, and then Israel's mass killings inside Gaza. And for Blinken to say that's the way out of this, Israel to normalize its relations with Saudi Arabia, completely ignores diverts what is happening in Gaza. Here is what the two issues in Gaza, and Shana referred to these, that have not been addressed and that have to be addressed on a regional basis. First is, of course, you have to get not only the ceasefire, but you have to get a coordinated plan to get assistance to those more than 2 million Gazans who have been displaced from their homes. But 
Israel will not even allow Gazans to return to their homes in the north of the Strip until all hostages are released by Hamas. Secondly, you've got to talk about who governs, who provides public services in Gaza. And at this point, Israel is vetoing any viable Palestinian group that could actually oversee a restoration, a minimal amount of security, as well as basic services. They will not allow the Palestinian Authority to go in and rule it. They have not proposed another group. They have said maybe a multinational force can go in and provide security, but the Arab states will not go in and provide that force to provide security unless you have a clear political plan in terms of running Gaza on a day-to-day basis. This week also saw the two Republican presidential candidates, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, square off in a tense debate just days before the Iowa caucuses. A few hours earlier, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race. He was running on an anti-Trump ticket and promised to continue working to ensure the former president never returns to office. Well, Washington reporter Simon Marks joined Monocle's Vincent McAvinney for an update a bit earlier this week. Well, Vincent, it was like so many of the other debates that we've already seen, very, very scrappy, even though there were only two candidates on the stage, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, and Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida. Their disdain for one another was on open display. They talked over one another constantly. Jake Tapper, the moderator of the debate for CNN, struggled at times to keep them focused on giving each other time and space to answer the questions that were being asked. And in many regards, the winner of the debate was the man who wasn't there, Donald Trump. His campaign believes that while Haley and DeSantis were showing the public that they are sparring with one another, Donald Trump was taking the moral high ground, appearing in a uh, televised town hall on Fox News, on another channel, surrounded by supporters. At one point, the CNN debate uh, went to a commercial break and there was a Donald Trump advertisement that aired in which Donald Trump was taking on Joe Biden as opposed to taking on the uh, rival Republicans who were trying to dethrone him. Nikki Haley uh, accused Ron DeSantis of frittering away millions of dollars in campaign funding on private jets. She said if he couldn't be trusted to spend his supporters' cash, he certainly couldn't be trusted with the country's money either. And at one point, uh, Nikki Haley accused Ron DeSantis of lying constantly about her record and also about his own record and she relentlessly promoted a new website that her campaign has launched she says to reveal Ron DeSantis's lies take a listen you're going to find out tonight that there's going to be a lot of Ron's lies that have happened there are at least a couple of dozen so far that he's done so what we're going to do is rather than have him go and tell you all these lies you can go to DeSantisLies.com and look at all of those. There's at least two dozen lies that he's told about me. And you can see where fact checkers say exactly what's going to happen and exactly why it's wrong. Now, on foreign policy, Ron DeSantis raised eyebrows by seemingly stepping away from the long-held two-state solution. 
Yes, very much so. He, of course, uh, attacks Nikki Haley as being a globalist. He said you could take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but you couldn't take the United Nations out of the ambassador. That a reference to her time as Donald Trump's representative at UN headquarters. The CNN moderator, though, challenged uh, Ron DeSantis. He said that Nikki Haley had last week publicly opposed any plan that Israel may have to depopulate Gaza, and he challenged Ron DeSantis to do the same. Do you support the mass removal of Palestinians from Gaza? So as president, I am not going to tell them to do that. I think there's a lot of issues with that. But if they make the calculation that to avert a second Holocaust, they need to do that. I think some of these Palestinian Arabs, Saudi Arabia should take Thank some. Is, Egypt should take some. They've never been willing to accept any of these folks you, in their own neighborhood. Quite a statement from the Florida governor there. Another governor, though, former governor, Chris Christie, has finally dropped out. Will his supporters, and granted there's not a huge number of them, now fall behind DeSantis or behind Haley? I think it's very unclear, Vincent, and it was notable that even on the day that he dropped out, Chris Christie did not offer an endorsement to either Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. Indeed, in off-mic comments that were captured by a microphone, possibly deliberately, Chris Christie insisted that he didn't uh, think that either of them was uh, fit to be president. He said that Ron DeSantis had called him when he learnt that Chris Christie was dropping out of the campaign, and he described Ron DeSantis as petrified about the future of his own campaign. And Nikki Haley, he predicted in his words, is going to get smoked, he said. We all know that. Uh, And that was a reference to her fate, undoubtedly, next week in the Iowa caucuses. She's essentially conceded that uh, Donald Trump is going to win in Iowa next week. She's keeping her powder dry, uh, hoping to stage a come-from-behind victory in New Hampshire in two weeks that then upends Donald Trump's campaign. But in in order to do that, she's going to have to attract uh, some of those Chris Christie supporters who will now be shopping around for another candidate. And even if she brings all of them across the transom, it's far from clear that that will necessarily prevent Donald Trump from winning in New Hampshire. The Trump campaign remains supremely confident. They believe that their man is now between eight and ten weeks away from e- effectively getting his grip on the Republican nomination, which will set the stage for a very long presidential campaign that could see uh, Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden essentially slugging it out for as long as eight months. You're with the curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rovello. Now, we turn the focus to South Asia for this week's Foreign Desk Explainer. Here's Monocle's Andrew Muller explaining Bangladesh's descent into a one-party autocracy. You may have gleaned that 2024 is going to be quite the democracy fest. Election calendars have aligned to the extent that at least 50 countries, including seven of the world's 10 most populous, will decide this year whether to stick with the government they have or give some other mob a whack at it. In some respects, this vast looming chorus of the Vox Populi is cause for optimism, even excitement, and not just for those of us who have a foreign affairs programme to fill every week. 2024 might yet serve as a reinvigoration of what appears to be a somewhat waning notion. At the turn of this century, a historical high of around 54% of the world's people lived in something at least resembling a democracy. 
We're now at around 30%, due substantially to backsliding by a couple of those bigger democracies. The VDEM Institute at the University of Gothenburg for one bunch of boffins has downgraded India to an electoral autocracy and assigns an even lower rating to Bangladesh, which this past weekend signally failed to get 2024 A World Decides off to an auspicious start and is the subject of this week's explainer. Bangladesh makes headlines rarely though it should. It is Earth's eighth biggest country by population, though gets crowded off the front pages by its even mightier neighbours India and Pakistan, both of whom also vote this year. If one merely glanced at those headlines this week, one might surmise that Bangladesh's 170 million people were pretty content with their lot. The Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, was returned for her fourth successive term, her fifth in total, as her party, the Awami League and its allies, cleaned up 223 of the 300 parliamentary seats that were available. Footnote, while there are 350 seats in Bangladesh's parliament, the Jatiya Sangsad, 50 are reserved for women, which are distributed proportionally to the 300 elected seats, so the Awami League will also collect most of these in due course. Anyway... Listeners who had begun forming the assumption that a dramatic, foreboding, however, was bearing grimly down upon this explainer may now briefly enact a triumphant fist clinch before the big moment. However... The Awami League's victory was made considerably easier by the fact that their principal opposition, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, had announced that they weren't turning up for this one, and suggested that their supporters gave it a swerve as well. The BNP had wanted the government to resign ahead of the election and allow a neutral caretaker administration to oversee proceedings. If this sounds like a big ask, and it certainly isn't what happens in most parliamentary democracies, it does have precedent in Bangladesh. It's what happened in elections in 1991, 1996, 2001 and 2008. The BNP's contention was that those elections were pretty much on the level, and in fairness to the BNP, they didn't win all of them, whereas when the Awami League has been in government, they've doctored the pitch pretty shamelessly, stuffing ballot boxes, buying votes, co-opting media, locking up pesky opposition politicians and activists, and so forth. The whole election was, was in a way, manipulated, in a way which is unprecedented. You know, we've seen bad elections in the past, but none really which has showed the kind of manipulation that went on here. There is, for these reasons, also precedent for the BNP boycotting a Bangladeshi election. They sat out 2014 as well, and though they did contest 2018, they claimed it was pretty obviously cooked and they were not alone. However, back in 2013, Bangladesh's Supreme Court ruled that the practice of caretaker governments overseeing elections was unconstitutional. During this latest, often violent, election campaign, thousands of BNP members were arrested, including its leader, Mirza Fakhrul Islam Alamgir. He and more than 100 other senior BNP officials were charged with murder after a police officer was killed during a demonstration. 
And many of the apparent opposition candidates who did get elected at the weekend are in fact Awami League stooges, encouraged to stand as independents to make it look like a contest. They voted so enthusiastically, especially women and young generation, the first-time voter. So this is our one opportunity and I always believe that if I can, if we can, uh, we want to develop the country, then democracy must be prevailed there. The official line is that turnout was nevertheless 40%. On the one hand, miserable. On the other hand, not that far behind most EU Parliament elections. But even this dismal figure is prompting astonished scoffing from those who counted the tumbleweed at Bangladeshi polling stations. This government is illegitimate. By a fake election, this is absolutely clear. The people of Bangladesh, by not going to vote in yesterday's elections, they have already proved that there cannot be any government by force. If any party does not participate in the election, it does not mean that there is no democracy. You have to consider whether people have participated or not. And you know that the, you mentioned the party. What they did? They said people. Bangladesh appears, therefore, to be joining that coterie of countries which can be thought of as one-party democracies, like South Africa, Turkey, Venezuela or Zimbabwe. Adding to the Awami League sense of entitlement is that Sheikh Hasina is what might be considered elected royalty. Her father, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, is also remembered as the nation's father. He led Bangladesh to independence in the early 1970s and served as Prime Minister and President before being murdered, along with most of his family, during a coup d'etat in 1975. Sheikh Hasina only escaped the slaughter because she was overseas. The depressing, well, a depressing thing about this election is that the Awami League does have a record it could have run honestly on. Millions of Bangladeshis who lived in poverty when this period of Sheikh Hasina's premiership began no longer do. I have my accountability to people, to the people. Whether people accepted it or not, whether they have accepted this election or not, that is important. Other depressing things about this include the likelihood that an ever more authoritarian Bangladesh will drift further from the West and closer to China and Russia, which increasingly look more like Sheikh Hasina's natural allies. A one-party democracy is still a one-party state. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Now the countdown is truly on for the upcoming Olympics in Paris, but with less than 200 days to go before the Games begin, how is the French capital faring with preparations? Florence Biederman is a political analyst and former AFP news editor, and she joined Emma Nelson with more. The headline that came out of Paris in the last couple of days is that 84% of the buildings are ready. I'm not entirely sure what that means. 
Well, that means we're ready. I mean, basically, <laughs> no, that means uh, actually most of the infrastructures were already existing, you know, so it was not quite such a, a big challenge. It is always a challenge, sure, but they didn't start from scratch. So it's not a surprise that uh, they are in time, you know. Again, uh, apart from a, a big swimming pool, I think most of the infrastructures, uh, it's either like old ones that have been renovated, refurbished or transformed, adapted also built uh, an Olympic village. But apart from that, let's say, they could rely on uh, on what was still there. So it was not the worry of these games. There are other concerns, but uh, on the building infrastructures, yes, they definitely think they would be in time. And to have everything in place at least, what, six months before things start, I mean, you, that is positively unheard of. But this was the thing that almost won it for Paris, wasn't it? They said, we're not going to have wholesale restructuring. We're going to adapt what we get. Does that make Parisians more amenable to what's about to happen to their city? Well, they are a bit worried and there are good reasons for that. Like the first question is the transport question. You know, the transport minister even asked Parisians to go on holiday during the games, you know, because they know it would be a bit difficult, you know, to to circulate inside Paris. And if the transport network is already very busy and sometimes overcrowded. So if you have the same amount of Parisian taking the transport at the same time as the some 800,000 people they expect every day for the events, then this will be very problematic. So you know already as a Parisian that uh, you should rather go away uh, than take part in the games. The second thing that really didn't uh, please the people is the fact that the metro ticket is going to be doubled. It's also linked to these transport questions. And um, there are, again, some worries about the security because the opening ceremony would be in open air on the Seine. And this is kind of a nightmare, you know, for the organisers and uh, for the police and security forces. Indeed. I mean, we've been seeing the, the most astonishing pictures coming out of Paris in the last couple of days. It's not often that you see an open top bus full of police officers parading through the centre of the French capital. I mean, what were they angry about? I mean, they clearly have to do an awful lot of the heavy lifting in July. Uh, definitely. You know, they will be fully mobilised. They were told they couldn't take holidays uh, during the Games, of course. There is, as I said, these security concerns uh, because you will have to secure, you know, the whole part of the scene that will be used for the events. You know, it will be on boards. It looks grand and splendid, but it is really uh, uh, very difficult. So uh, the police, yes, demonstrated. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a protest, but somehow they are asking questions. Will we have bonuses? Uh, how will it go? what will we have to do? It's still uh, not completely clear. But I would say the same is valid also for the transport network. You know, all the people working in the transports are already negotiating like kind of bonus because uh, they know they will really be uh, very much uh, over busy, if I may say, during uh, all this uh, period. Finally, just a, a, a little sort of on a side note, we have the new Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal, and trying to pull together a cabinet at the moment. What is the general reception to his arrival as, you know, the youngest prime minister to serve in France? Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I would say on, there is a certain amount of, uh, you know, scepticism, maybe on one side, people saying he's very young, will he be strong enough? Because there are many um, heavyweights in this government, uh, the Home Affairs Minister or the Economy Minister, will he be able, you know, to, to make this government function? But on the other side, he is one of uh, the most popular uh, Macron minister, and he is more or less compatible with 
the right, I mean the conservative right, and also he's coming from the left. So everybody's kind of hoping uh, it will work. I mean, he, he arrives with, let's say, people seem to have welcomed his uh, arrival. Like, okay, let's wait and see. But if someone is in a good position to try something, he could be the one. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Welcome back to The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. I'm Carlotta Rebello. The argument that big, dense, concrete cities are bad for us and that a green revolution is what all cities need to thrive is one that gets plenty of play with modern-day urbanists. But what is behind the notion that we need to flip the city on its head in the coming years? And is there a case to be made for celebrating our spaces just as they are? This is the topic explored in the new book The City of Today is a Dying Thing by Des Fitzgerald. Des joined Monaco's Andrew Tuck for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Let's have a listen. Yeah, I mean, I think basically what's undergirding a lot of kind of green city initiatives is a kind of idea that like there's something wrong with the city. And that can go in like a few different directions, right? One can think of a certain set of affirmative transformations we could do to make cities better. But I think what the green city is doing is trying to imagine a space before the city existed altogether. It's based on a kind of a fantasy of return, not just to the pre-city, but to pre-modernity in a certain kind of way. And in that sense, there's something to me that's kind of reactionary that undergirds a lot of green city rhetoric and imagination. I think, for example, if we want to take seriously things like, say, let's say mental health in cities, which is a thing that's often put forward as a reason that you want more green space in cities, right? Because it's good for well-being and it's good for mental health. You know, I just can't get on board with the idea that if you want to seriously resolve the question of poor mental health in urban space, the idea that you're going to start with parks and trees and not, you know, much more mundane, much more boring things that we all know about, right? My big worry is that while we're talking about green space or like national park cities or those kinds of things, what we're not talking about are the big, obvious, dull social problems that are actually undergirding a lot of kind of what we see as problematic about living in a contemporary city. Let's take a step back because what's also fascinating about your book is, you know, that it's a run across history, certainly across recent history, of people who have looked at the city and thought about creating a garden city to build new suburbs where there's a kind of halfway house in between the density and the craziness of the downtown core of a New York, of a Chicago, of a London, and something, as you say, that's a bit of a hybrid of that with nature, and you end up with these suburban cities, Welling Garden City here in the UK. I guess when I was reading the book, I think that's the bit that you have most disapproval of in a way because it's neither one nor the other you're kind of not saying I want to go out in the countryside and be a farmer but you're certainly not saying I want to come into the city and enjoy its chaos and its serendipity and all the things that it throws at me. Indeed I mean I think the thing that's really striking to me is that we live in an age in which there are a lot of kind of future city visions right I mean we've all seen like weird clips of Neom there's a city called Telosa that is potentially being planned somewhere in the United States And the thing that always strikes me is anytime you read through what's the kind of philosophical underpinnings of kind of new urban visions, it's always basically a rehash of mid-19th century social reform. As seen, you know, most prominently in urban planning, 
in the work of someone like Ebenezer Howard. So Ebenezer Howard is the founder of the Garden City movement. And as you say, it's exactly Howard's vision was basically, what if you could find a space that had all the attractions and affordances and good things about the city? So work, conviviality, all the good things we associate with urban space, but also had, you know, air, green space, more kind of pastoral ideas of what countryside living was like. So if you could put those two things together, that's really the fantasy of the Garden City. And it's just remarkable to me that no one ever thinks about, well, why is it that we never built any more well in Garden cities? Why is it that we never built any more Letchworth Garden cities? Why did that movement not take over? Is weirdly unthought through. We're just rehashing it again and again, even in like weirdly sci-fi forms like in Neom. I mean, Neom is really just a kind of sci-fi Ebenezer Howard. That's all it is. It's Ebenezer Howard with an airport. <laughs> and tell me, you went to lots of conferences, you met lots of people who are talking about the future of the city and why our current city is doomed or dying or failing. But did you find a model that you thought this is the direction of travel that we should take? No, I didn't. And this is such a boring academics kind of answer, but here it is anyway. It's because it's a bad question. Not that your question is bad, but the question that undergirds these kind of conferences, which is, yeah, what would the future of the city look like? What's the ideal future of the city? It's just such a bad place to start from. And it always starts at really bad models, like places like Copenhagen, which I mentioned in the book, which is like astonishing to me that you would take Copenhagen as a kind of model of what a good city looks like. I mean, the thing that always strikes me when I go to these kind of conferences is that we're never talking about the kind of urban spaces that people actually live in, right? We're always talking about Copenhagen and London and Shanghai and not that people live in those places, obviously. But if you add up all the people who live in urban areas around the globe, they overwhelmingly live in, you know, I can say this as a person who lives in one, like crap cities, right? They live in places like Cork or Swansea, or Nottingham, or Aulu, or Lyon, you know, second tier, not particularly well-functioning cities. So rather than kind of thinking of what is the future of the city, which is invariably a question about like, what are we going to do in the square mile in London, right? Or what are we going to do in Hackney? I'd much rather think about what can we learn from the way that life is lived well in fairly crap urban spaces today? And that's just such an uninteresting question, I think, from the point of view of funders or planners or the kind of people who run these kind of events. You're arguing for an appreciation of the city we have today. And you know, if you live in, as you say, a crap city, make the most of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much make the most of it, but like give up on this fantasy of utopia. You know, I do think like urban utopia is always terrible. I think I say this somewhere in the book that utopia is always bad news for someone. And this fantasy of transformation, I think, invariably takes us to bad, often violent places, actually. And it's not so much just to kind of be complacent and just live with the kind of bad stuff we have but it's just I worry that like too much of contemporary urban discourse is driven by people who just don't like cities right that what is driving them is not a kind of a vision of the future city it's a vision of an anti-city so I'd much rather listen to people who are trying to make good life in semi-functioning urban spaces and who are committing to those spaces than people who basically want us all to you know go back to the Garden of Eden. First of all, actually, we should just say for our Danish listeners, perhaps you can explain why Copenhagen is such a bee in your bonnet. I lived in Denmark for a year, so I feel somehow validated or allowed to be rude about Denmark. I lived in Aarhus, which is, uh, of course, the cork of Denmark. It's the second city way up in the north of Jutland. And of course, if you're in Aarhus, you're very much allowed to be rude about Copenhagen. I mean, it's not so much, and Copenhagen is perfectly fine, but it, to me, it just represents such a kind of dull aestheticization of what a good city looks like. You know, that kind of bland Nordic nothingness where nothing bad happens and no one's ever hurt and there's pretty houses on the harbour. It's just so vacuous, I think, in terms of thinking seriously about what good urban space looks like. You know, I think when people are talking about Copenhagen, 
like it's a way of not talking about the city, right? It's a way of kind of talking about some kind of odd projection we all have about Nordicness. So it's nothing against Copenhagen itself. I'm sure it's a lovely place. It's just what it stands in for in these kind of spaces. What do you want people to take away from this book? I must say the book is funny. You're rude about quite a lot of places. It turns out you don't like Paris either. But tell me, what do you want people to do when they read this book? Because there are lots of people who are going to read this book and it trips you up a few times. It makes you think differently about the debates and, and about the consensus. And I think in any world when you have so much consensus, that's a problem. But what do you want people to take away from your book? You know, what I'd really like people to do is to think a little bit differently about what they're talking about when they talk about urban nature. I think so many of the kind of problems in this area, so many of the ways we get tripped up is we have this very loose, very romantic and very poorly thought through idea of something called nature. And we usually mean, you know, vegetation or trees or like otters or whatever it is. But the idea that the city is an unnatural place, that it's artificial, that it's a place we're not meant to be in because of whatever it is, evolution or genetic inheritance. I would really like people to think a lot more critically around that. I think one of the most important messages in the book for me is that there's nothing unnatural about the modernist public housing schemes of the mid 20th century, right? Either in terms of like materials or in terms of mode of life. And I think the idea that we have a natural mode of living and that if only we find it, life would be good again. I do think that this is a potentially deeply reactionary affect and one that will only lead us to bad places. Let's head to Singapore now, where a first-of-its-kind exhibition at the National Gallery has brought together works by Southeast Asian and Latin American artists, including Frida Kahlo and David Medalla. Tropical charts the 20th century, a period of political upheaval, as European empires retreated. These changes inspired creatives to produce art in their own image and move away from colonial depictions of their communities and lifestyles. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett visited the exhibition and spoke with its curator to find more. We are standing by one of the largest exhibits in Tropical, which is Tropicalia by Elia Oitisika. Talk me through the staging process of this. I mean, there are many different components to it. There are wooden structures, there's gravel, there's sand, lots of plants, there are even some birds which we might pick up on the recording as well. It is a very impressive installation and it's one that really brings together all the elements that you just listed, which were really uh, Oitesika's way of gathering some of the stereotypes and tropes about the tropics, but presenting them in, as we see, quite a manicured fashion. So there's a gravel path which leads us through the space, which is uh, interactive, so visitors can also walk on the path and on the sand and explore different parts of the installation. So it's a work that was really presented in 1967 in Rio de Janeiro and kind of recreating it here for our exhibition was a long and laborious but also very rewarding process. We work directly with the artist's estate, uh, Progetto Elio Oitesica, which is currently run by his nephew, César Oitesica. And César joined us here in Singapore for about a week and a half. You can hear the birds there. We put the work, kind of assembled it together uh, with a whole team of contractors and staff, putting the sand down, uh, putting the gravel down, getting the birds settled in as well. Uh, it was a very fun process.
My name is Tiawee Min, and I'm a curator here at the National Gallery. And what are some of the big shared themes between Latin American and Southeast Asian artworks, especially in the 20th century, because that's kind of the main focus of the uh, tropical exhibition? For our exhibition, we were really kind of tracing the connections across these two really incredible regions, looking at uh, kind of shared stories of solidarity. You know, firstly, they come through kind of a shared experience of colonialism, how artists were also working through that experience, but also the experience of modern art as well. And of course, uh, sometimes those solidarities uh, were very real, so many artists did meet, but sometimes they were felt. And what I mean by that is kind of a shared thought space, you know, where not just images of art are circulated, but also you know, writing, poetry, manifestos as well. And one of the themes you explore is this kind of myth of the lazy native that comes up a lot in the artwork. It's kind of pushing back against these very idealised, in some ways, colonial depictions of Southeast Asia and Latin America. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it's quite a provocative term and we didn't come up with it ourselves. It really borrows from a a seminal text written in 1977 by the sociologist Syed Hussein Alatas right here in Singapore. Uh, Actually, he wrote that text. And in that kind of very powerful statement, he was really unpacking how stereotypical images uh, of the colonial subject were really very deliberately constructed under the auspice of colonial rule, many times to justify why colonial rule was kind of, in fact, needed uh, in the region. And tracing that back to the story of art, uh, we realized that there was a parallel interest within the story of art to also kind of perpetuate uh, certain depictions of the colonized subject as sort of happy, peaceful workers, you know, working in these very idealistic, often very pastoral, kind of serene scenes uh, of the landscape. So what we realized was that, you know, by the early 20th century, many of the artists really spoke against this external view, uh, choosing instead to look around them, to paint themselves, their mothers, their wives, freedom fighters, fellow artists, laborers, workers, really going to the root of experience and using that as a pathway of resistance as well. So we're standing in front of one of my favorite paintings in the exhibition. It's a work by the Brazilian artist Tassila do Amaral. It's dated to 1925 and the title is The Fruit Seller. And it really shows us a very stereotypical image of the tropics, a fruit seller with all kinds of tropical fruits in his basket. He has oranges, he has mangoes, he has a pineapple which is somehow spineless. And that's because the artist has chosen to paint a picture in very smooth kind of lines and using very clear blocks of primary colour. And uh, what's interesting about this work is not just how Tassila has brought together these tropes of paradise, you know, endless sea, uh, tropical beaches, palm trees, fruits. It's actually the expression uh, of the fruit seller because he doesn't look peaceful, nor does he look happy. And he's gazing at us with these sort of half-lidded, rather cynical-looking eyes uh, as he looks out at us uh, and in a way challenging us to really consider the individual experience that he has. 
And I'm really interested as well in how you planned other parts of the exhibition. I noticed that many of the paintings are hung with a panel behind them saying who the artist is and what the painting's called and a little bit about the background of it, rather than next to the painting, which is maybe more common. Was that a deliberate planning decision? There are so many aspects of tropical, you know, from architecture to design, you know, and what we're looking at here in the visual arts. And we wanted to find a way to incorporate uh, some of those physical aspects of tropical thinking into the exhibition. And really design and architecture uh, was a key part. So the interesting structures that are on display in the exhibition and are used to display the artworks actually come from an Italian-Brazilian architect whose name is Lina Bobadi. And she first debuted these incredible crystal easels at the Museum of Modern Art in Sao Paulo uh, as early as the late 1960s. And she had a very unique and very inspiring philosophy, which was a resolute stubbornness to decide you know, not to hang paintings on the white wall which she uh, very astutely reminded us were not neutral. And as you rightly point out, you know, I'm very guilty of this as well. You know, we tend to look at the description of the artwork first uh, before looking at the artwork itself. And she really wanted to reinvigorate that experience of looking, you know, to look at a work of art before reading it. So it's not just the information about the artwork which is on the back that is revealed you know, through the glass easel. Uh, it's also the frame the stretcher, the exhibition labels, you know, really reminding us that the work of art and specifically painting isn't just a two-dimensional image, but it's a work of labour uh, as well. You're with the curator on Monocle Radio. I'm Carlotta Rubello. In November 2022, one reality TV series took the UK by storm. The Traitors, originally launched in 2021 in the Netherlands, has since seen adaptations in Australia, the United States and beyond. The UK version of the psychological game show sees contestants travel to a castle in the Scottish Highlands, the majority of whom are tasked to play the game honestly as fatefuls, while three to four traitors work secretly to murder innocent contestants overnight, all while evading suspicion. At stake, of course, is a life-changing price fund. Well, Monocle's Tamsin Howard spoke to Mark Poss, the brains behind the TV format, and she began by asking him why he decided to pitch this idea. In 2014, it was, for our country, a radical new idea, because you know who the traders are. And we have them all as a successful format here in the Netherlands, and they always said, yeah, it's like maybe the mall, but now you know who the mall is, so why it's interesting. And I always thought, I want to see human behavior. Can you trust somebody? What do you do if you can't trust anybody? A professor over here said to me in psychology, said, when people can't, in a group, can't trust anybody, that's what we can't stand as human beings. So I try to to tell my broadcasters, uh, my clients that 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 human behavior I really want to see, and I think everybody wants to see it, but they didn't see what I was 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 pitching at that right at that moment. So in the first three years, they had questions and mostly good questions. So we enhanced the format. We did a lot of tests in the office, but also uh, made a pilot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We did it ourselves, not together with a broadcaster. And after a few years. The format was, I think, ready to really roll out, etc. So the last three years was be convincing enough. And when I came for the third, fourth or fifth time for a pitch, people told, 
to me, oh, no, you're again here with the traders. Why? Yeah, you can't do that with every format you're pitching in the, in the market, but that's what we did. And we were so convinced that it was a good uh, format and that you never know. Creativity is is vulnerable, so to speak. But we were convinced and we, we stayed pitching. And I think that zeitgeist part helps us underneath, so to speak. The zeitgeist part of... What I always call, can you trust anybody? Can in in this world of social media, can you trust the news? Uh, now AI is coming, etc. So I think there's there's something an, a kind of undercurrent wave uh, with the audience why they like to watch it. That's what I think. So you had a gut instinct that this this show needed to be broadcast, and you were fine tuning it, and obviously yeah. the the product was absolutely brilliant. It was a present that when I pitched it, they didn't buy it. I didn't know before that it was a present in my professional life because the present is that I had, now maybe six years is a little bit long, but I got from my clients, from my broadcaster who didn't want to buy it, time. And time has to be a friend of a creative. And mostly time is not a friend of a creative because we have to produce it. We have people in our company who has to work and et cetera, et cetera. And we, we, we need the revenue and that kind of stuff. But you actually came from a background in directing and television. You were the first director of Big Brother in the Netherlands. And more recently, you were one of the directors of Eurovision 2020. Did your experience of working on live entertainment shows inform how you worked as a producer on something like Traitors? No, I don't think so. I think that's really completely different. Probably it influenced me, but I don't know how. From this live entertainment genre, which I mostly did as a director, not as a producer or former developer, it, it later, in from 2010, I developed more and more documentary series about art, about science. But I didn't like to have this documentary series you know about a scientist telling a story uh, just into the camera and that kind of stuff i wanted to have scientists or artists to go with them on an adventure and they were in those formats i saw real scientists talking to each other have an adventure try to find something etc etc so i thought that's what i love more at this time the trailer was my first show in this genre I never directed that kind of shows, never made or directed or produced a reality show, never. So it was all new to me. And my first show is this, <laughs> was this, this Traders. It's a good beginning. I mean, there's certainly something quite special about the organic feel of unscripted TV, regardless of the amount of production that's going on behind the scenes. Now, The Traitors started off in the Netherlands, broadcasted by RTL. It's been picked up and developed by, I believe, 20 countries? 26, and there are a few coming next, this year. So I think we will hit the 30 countries this year. Wow. And so they're either in production or they've been aired. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Why do you think this format has travelled so well internationally? I think that... No, I'm convinced why it's traveling this successful is that love and trust <laughs> is the, it's a key element of humankind. So that doesn't differ much if you are French or from the USA or from the Netherlands. So that's, that's the main 
reason that it travels this fast, I think, because it's not cultural to typical Dutch to trust anybody or everybody wants to trust somebody always. We are a group of people who wants to trust each other to make things, to do things, etc., etc. So that's the main reason that, to me, that, that it travels this fast. I'm convinced about that. But I wonder whether you've noticed anything in the way that different countries have adapted the format. I know in the UK, all of the contestants are, quote unquote, normal people. But in the US, we have celebrities featuring. To me, it's not a format change that it's sometimes with celebrities or not. And there are not really many really big format changes in other countries. In the When we were selling it the last few years, this format in the beginning I did, let's say, was it really involved in ten the first 10 countries. And then it was more about how to produce it because in the when people produce reality in the world at production companies, just an example, but it tells more. When a reporter asks to a contestant a question, then they give an answer. Mostly, they ask to this contestant, uh, oh, that's a nice answer, but can you maybe put it like this and this and this, or maybe change your answer a little bit and that kind of stuff. That's forbidden with the traders. We leave the contestants how they are, what they want to say, and we don't help them, so to speak, in the game or how to uh, have a better quote or something like that. So we as producers, we as uh, program makers, we as directors, we as we don't interfere with the life of this bubble, so to speak. And that was a part we had to work hard on with my team. And I think that's clear. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Empey and presented by me, Carlotta Rubello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes across Monocle Radio. I'm Carlotta Rubello. Goodbye and thanks for listening.